Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 16th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Putin is accused of developing a space-based nuclear weapon. India's Supreme Court scraps a controversial election funding system. One person is killed and 21 injured in a Super Bowl parade shooting. The U.S. and its Middle Eastern allies discuss an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. NATO's chief says there's been an unprecedented rise in member defense spending. A U.N. envoy warns of dangerous escalation in Yemen. Japan unexpectedly slips into a recession. A report says safety failures led to 344 federal inmate deaths. Google plans to map methane from space. And scientists develop a beef-rice hybrid for the first time. In our top story, U.S. sources say Russia is developing a space-based nuclear weapon. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Politico, and the United States Space Command. Russia is said to be developing a nuclear weapon aimed at destroying satellites in space, according to U.S. sources who spoke to several publications late on Wednesday. The reports came after Congressman Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, issued an unspecified warning of a serious national security threat facing the U.S., urging President Joe Biden to declassify the intelligence to facilitate, quote, the actions necessary to respond. However, sources who spoke to the press said that while it is a serious issue, intelligence does not represent a current capability, nor should it be a cause for panic. There is currently no such weapon in orbit, they added. Some questioned the timing of Turner's statement. Politico reported that U.S. intelligence had been aware of Russia's alleged plans for more than a year, and the House Intelligence Committee had known for at least a week. The Senate Intelligence Committee also reportedly had access to this information. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan expressed surprise as he said he had been scheduled to brief the Gang of Eight, which includes leaders of both parties, and top representatives of both chambers' intelligence committees. Though he didn't disclose the topic of the briefing, he said, I'll leave it to you to draw whatever connections you want. Meanwhile, although there was no mention of a nuclear component, the U.S. previously warned of a risk of Russian anti-satellite weapons as early as 2020. In 2021, Russia conducted a test of such a weapon on one of its own satellites, reportedly obliterating it, into more than 1,500 pieces and prompting a public condemnation from U.S. Space Command. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Let's start with a pro-establishment narrative spin from NBC News. While this weapon is not yet operational, it is a serious potential threat facing the U.S. Satellites are a critical component of America's civilian communications and navigation networks, as well as its military and intelligence-collecting capabilities. This danger has to be addressed. And here's a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. This is yet another example of U.S. officials using malicious tactics to hype up a threat so as to get exorbitant spending packages approved. In this case, to approve a further $60 billion of weapons for Ukraine. Moscow is no stranger to the games that Washington plays. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This time they say there's a 24% chance that a nuclear weapon will be detonated as an act of war by the year 2050. 
All right. All seriousness aside here, isn't blowing things up in space what we lived for? I mean, wasn't that how we were trained as children of the 90s to blow things up in space and for the 80s for that for that matter? Uh, you're talking about like Defender, Space Invaders, Asteroids type You're talking stuff. about video games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there actually a movie about a kid who was really good at video games that they end up recruiting for some kind of military thing? Haven't we already Isn't had that, that movie? Like the last Star Is that Fighter Ready Player One? No? No. That's oh different. my gosh. Yeah. Ready Player One. That movie. What, what are your thoughts? Did you ever see the Ready Player One movie? I did movie? not. No. I Supposedly just, I just that premise. book is like unbelievable. Um, but the, uh, ready player one movie I thought was a good example of what happens when you can do anything you want and what a mess it becomes, you know, as a creative person, you know, Ah. the limitations are what makes something like even so that movie, they even have all these different intellectual properties mixed together because Steven Spielberg's able to call like. I'm going to call Disney and Warner Brothers, so Godzilla better be in this if King Kong's going to be in it or whatever. Right. The movie was a disaster. It was just a (laughs) cluster. Okay. Oh, so you're saying not the premise was the premise was not a for a warning tale about creativity out of control. The movie. Right. Exactly. Actually, actually, I think the 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 movie is a parable about creativity out of control. But yes, the very creation of the movie is what it sought to is critique. Is that terrible? Yes. That is hilarious. I think so. India's top court strikes down an electoral bond scheme. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Live Law, Bloomberg, The Indian Express, Money Control, Al Jazeera, and BBC. India's Supreme Court on Thursday struck down an anonymous electoral funding scheme introduced by Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government in 2018, calling it unconstitutional and a violation of the right to information. Under the scheme, individuals or firms could anonymously buy the State Bank of India's tax-exempted electoral bonds and donate them to political parties, which could then cash in these bonds. Political parties and activists had challenged the scheme, alleging it was problematic for transparency, harmed democracy, and was unfair to the opposition. The five-judge Constitution bench also directed the State Bank of India to stop issuing electoral bonds and submit details of all purchases since April 12, 2019, to the Election Commission of India. Chief Justice D.Y. Chandrachud stated that it was essential for the voters to know about the funding of political parties for the effective exercise of the choice of voting, adding unlimited corporate funding violated the principles of free and fair elections. However, the Modi government had defended the scheme, claiming that it would remove unaccounted money from entering elections. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from Carnegie, India. Simply put, it's almost impossible in India to donate to a particular political party and not expect its rivals to act against the donor. Often, the repercussions can be deadly. Confidentiality becomes key in such situations. It's also incorrect to presume that only companies use the electoral bond scheme. There's data to show that categories of donors are diverse. Most importantly, the scheme undercuts the importance of cash and political donations, plugging the gap for unaccounted funds to seep into electoral politics. And the Financial Times brings us the establishment critical narrative. It's almost self-evident that in Indian elections, winnability is connected to financial power. Under the construct of electoral bonds, the BJP government has created a system 
where the voter can't know who has funded a party. There can't be a more promising gateway for corruption. Between March 2018 and July 2019, an overwhelming 91% of the donations made this way were by private companies and wealthy individuals. Who do you think the recipient's favorite will be when it comes to the rich versus the poor? And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 95% chance that the right-wing incumbent BJP will win the 2024 national election in India. In developing a uh, financial funding plan for political purposes, the first step is don't call it a scheme. That's <laughs> that's a bad that's a bad start. Yeah, whether or not it's it still holds merit as a, a, a an uncorrupted word, uh, it, I don't know. It doesn't appear that way in, anymore. The optics yes. of the word scheme, yeah, been it's been tainted. Yes, very much so. Sad news in Kansas City as one person is killed and 21 are injured at a Super Bowl parade shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, ABC News, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. At least one person was killed and over 20 were wounded, some with life-threatening injuries, Wednesday after gunfire interrupted the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl championship parade in Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves, who had assigned over 800 officers to the large gathering, said 11 of the injured were children. She noted that three suspects were arrested and at least one weapon was found. Lisa Lopez Galvin, a 44-year-old radio DJ who had two children, was killed. She hosted a local radio show, Taste of Tejano. Federal law enforcement is now working alongside the local department in the investigation. Several high-profile figures at the event later notified the public of their safety, including Chiefs players and staff, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly, and Missouri Governor Mike Parson. Thanks, Melissa. We have some narratives on this tragic story, starting with the left narrative spin from every town. This tragedy was sadly predictable in Missouri and neighboring Kansas, states with some of the weakest gun laws in the country. Kansas City endured its highest rate of gun violence in 2023, and these tragedies are going to continue until far-right legislators stop stripping away gun safety measures and instead take action to keep guns off the streets. Here's the right narrative from the Daily Wire. Left-leaning activists, of course, are going to use this incident to try to take away guns from law-abiding citizens. But they'll ignore the heroes who jumped into action to limit the damage the criminals could do. Instead of blaming guns, which millions of Americans own and handle responsibly, the people who did the shooting should be held accountable for their actions. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 0.2% chance that the Second Amendment, as written and in force on December 13th, 2018, will be successfully amended or repealed before January 1st, 2025. I don't think the NRA is the problem. I think there are, a, if, if I would like, I, I was going to say weaponize the NRA. That's not what, that's not what I meant. <laughs> But let's like deputize them. Like, listen, kind of like you have with your your son. Like, you get to watch a show if you are on time to school. Okay, NRA, if the number of school shootings goes down next year, you can keep your guns. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, let's, right. you know, like education and whatever. What, I don't know what we need oh, to do. That's a great But like, idea. let's incentivize in the mm -hmm. right way. Like, I'll, I mean, let's bring the NRA in to the discussion. Yeah. You 
are about, ostensibly, you're about like gun education and enthusiast. Okay, cool. Let's do that. But what we've done is we've made it us against them. Yeah. NRA is bad. Uh, they're, oh, they're a bunch of so right. stupid people. Let's we bring... say if there are zero children killed under the age of twelve. Yep, then you guys uh, get a free gun, extra guns or something. Yeah, well, yeah, we're like... gonna give you five million dollars. Yeah, to just sure. stop to not make let's, any more guns. Yeah, what's it? What is it gonna take to incentive? Because I think the NRA can be a resource. Like you guys, That's a great idea. Like guns, and there's a lot to be. I don't think guns are bad necessarily. I don't want a bunch of kids to shoot each other. Like that's my problem. Like yeah. they should be just as upset as we are that a bunch of kids shot each other, but instead it's a political thing. Like let's right. bring them in. Let's how do we do that? Let's do let let's do that. It's just that easy. Let's. let's I think do you're on to something. I think you're on to something. That's yeah. a good idea. U.S. and its Middle East allies are working on an Israel-Palestine peace plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Washington Post, the Times of Israel, Voice of America, Axios, Reuters, and Euro News. The Washington Post reported on Wednesday that the U.S. and its Arab allies are working on an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan that possibly includes rebuilding Gaza, withdrawing settler communities from the West Bank, uniting the two territories under one administration, and a timeline for establishing a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Israeli officials reacted with apprehension toward the reported plan, which is expected to be officially announced in the coming weeks, possibly after a pause in fighting in Gaza. A spokesperson for the Israeli government said that this is a bad time to discuss gifts to the Palestinian people and the day after Hamas. Complicating the situation is Israel's looming operation into Rafah, where over one million displaced Palestinians are sheltering, largely in tent camps. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pulled out of hostage deal talks in Cairo on Wednesday, arguing that Hamas hadn't changed its ludicrous demands. Nonetheless, CIA Director Bill Burns traveled to Israel on Thursday to discuss the talks in Cairo with Netanyahu and Mossad chief David Barnea. Burns on Tuesday met with senior Qatari, Egyptian, and Israeli officials, reportedly making some progress but not a breakthrough. On Thursday, Israeli forces announced they had entered Nasser Hospital in Kanyanis, the largest functioning hospital in Gaza, calling the raid precise and limited. Gazan health officials said that thousands of Palestinians taking refuge at the hospital were forced to flee. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 28,000 people in the Strip, mainly women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation, The official October 7th Israeli death toll stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in Gaza. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round with a pro-establishment narrative from Vox. Israelis and Palestinians must make peace via a two-state solution. Though it may seem that it has never been as difficult to make peace, moderates must rise above the populist extremism of Hamas and the Israeli political right so the land can be shared. Both Israeli and Palestinian national aspirations are valid projects that deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. The two-state solution may not be the most equitable or desirable for either side, but it's the most achievable outcome. And the Jerusalem Post brings us the pro-Israel narrative. Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel was the final nail in the coffin for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Since Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, 
The enclave has essentially existed as a terrorist-run proto-state run by Hamas. Given the Palestinian Authority's inefficacy, Israel has no partners for peace, and the last 20 years in Gaza prove this. A violent, terrorist-run Palestinian state would be an existential threat to Israel's security. And here's the pro-Palestine narrative from Mother Jones. Israel killed the two-state solution. There can't be a Palestinian state after nearly 75 years of Israeli policies, effectively atomizing and dividing the Palestinian political scene and physical landscape via a system of apartheid and occupation. The only solution is to accept reality. Israel is an apartheid state that practices sovereignty over the entire region, and this apartheid must be dismantled so that all people residing in the land can live free as equals. Did you watch any of the Putin Tucker Carlson interview? No, I didn't. Did you get to did you finally I ended up watching it all and I I, I enjoyed it. Um actually, Putin, I mean, people are making fun of Putin for this, but first question Tucker asks like, "Why did you invade Ukraine?" And Putin's like, "Well, if you want to learn why I did that, we got to go back to the year 800 when the the, mm. the Bolsheviks and the Cossacks were doing it's like, "Oh my gosh, we're going we're go- but he's not wrong. Like, right. why is this the way that it is? You have to go back to figure it out. It's now, at the beginning of the chess game, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Why does this move happen now? Well, because you moved that pawn three hours ago. You know, like that's right. that's why this we're is here. Just where we are. Yeah. However, yeah. at some point, we live here now, and okay, the Palestinian Israel situation is poisoned. You know, like because of all this bad stuff that's happened. Um, at some point, everyone has to say, like, let's put our hands up and forgive and forget and moving forward, treat each other as good as we can. Because everyone, I mean, the things that Israel is doing right now are unforgivable in response to what Palestine did that was unforgivable. So everything's unforgivable. We, If we're going to try to get to the, so that everyone's made whole, we're never going to get there. We just have to be like, okay, we have to stop. And we all have to live in this world and we're stuck with each other. What they really have to realize is that they're stuck with each other. You know, just yeah. just like the embittered couple, like, no, you're going to stay together. You're Catholic. Sorry. Y- y- yeah, you're Catholic. No. You own this house together. You have kids. So you don't have to like it, but you have to get through the next 40 right. years of being together. So what do you do now? Now, you wish there was a romantic spark. You wish that the person was different. You wish this. That's great, but that's not. We got to, what are you going to do tomorrow? So maybe vacuum for the other person or maybe say a kind word and then we'll go from there. Right. Um, and and just go through the motions at first and eventually it will start feeling genuine. Yeah. Right? I think Israel still thinks they can make it so that they aren't stuck with Palestine. And I yeah. think Palestine wishes they weren't stuck with Israel and they have a moral ground of being, we shouldn't be stuck with Israel. But guess what? You are. This, yeah. Israel's not going anywhere and Palestine's not going anywhere. So pucker up. There's 28 years left on this 30 year mortgage. Keep get <laughs> good luck. Right, right. NATO's chief says there's been an unprecedented rise in member defense spending. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Reuters and the Associated Press. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg on Wednesday, the eve of a meeting of NATO defense ministers in Brussels, said the organization has seen an unprecedented rise in defense spending among its member countries. 
Stoltenberg was responding to comments made by former U.S. President Donald Trump, who on Saturday warned he would allow Russia to attack NATO members who are delinquent in spending 2% of their GDPs on defense. In 2024, Stoltenberg said NATO's European states are expected to invest a combined $380 billion in defense, which would equal 2% of GDP, up from 1.85% in 2023. Stoltenberg added that a record 18 of the coalition's 31 members are expected to hit the 2% of GDP defense spending goal, but some allies still have a way to go. In a related matter, Stoltenberg urged the U.S. House to pass a vital military aid package for Ukraine, which passed the Senate earlier this week. Stoltenberg warned Republicans who opposed the aid that China could become aggressive if it sees Russia win its war. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-Trump narrative from Daily Caller. NATO is obviously waking up to the fact that a second Trump presidency is in the offing. The alliance's members are preparing to increase their spending just as they did when Trump first took office and put them on notice. Under Trump, the U.S. isn't going to protect any country who's not sufficiently invested in its own security and the protection of its allies. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from the Huffington Post. There are almost too many inaccuracies in Trump's understanding of NATO to break them all down. But a full two years before Trump took office, NATO decided that 2% of GDP would be a goal for defense spending, and it would be strived for over time. Countries who aren't meeting the goal aren't costing the U.S. money. NATO isn't a protection racket. It's an alliance. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that NATO will have at least 32 member countries by December 31st, 2025. The U.N. warns of a dangerous escalatory cycle in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Middle East Monitor, the U.N.'s Office of the Special Envoy of the Secretary General for Yemen, TRT World, NDTV, and Fox News. The U.N. Special Representative for Yemen, Hans Grunberg, called for immediate action in the U.N. Security Council on Wednesday to end the dangerous escalatory cycle in the Red Sea region urging all relevant actors to resume the peace process in war-torn Yemen. Grunberg expressed concern about rising tensions following the Gaza war, including the Red Sea military escalation and U.S.-U.K. airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Peace efforts are also hampered by worrying developments in Yemen, such as clashes, mobilizations, and casualties, the U.N. official said. Three things need to happen in the short term to resolve the crisis, Grunberg told the Security Council. He called for regional de-escalation for all parties to refrain from military opportunism and to secure the progress made towards a mediation agreement. In 2015, the Iran-aligned Houthis began fighting a Saudi Arabia-led coalition after taking over large parts of Yemen, forcing the internationally recognized government to retreat to Aden in the country's south. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in the fighting as well as from disease and malnutrition. In December, the warring parties agreed to resume an inclusive political process to resolve the Yemen crisis, the UN said. However, the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, as well as the U.S.-led retaliatory measures, brought the efforts to a standstill. Meanwhile, UN Relief Operations Director Edem Wasnoru warned that the U.S. move to return the Houthis to a list of terrorist groups risks harming Yemen's already fragile economy, including commercial imports of vital goods. According to the U.N., more than 18 million people in Yemen are dependent on humanitarian aid. 
Thank you, Scott. Here's the establishment critical narrative from Almayadeen. The U.N. Special Envoy for Yemen's call to break the cycle of escalation is to be welcomed, but fails to address the root cause of the increasing violence in the region and the Red Sea. The operations of the axis of resistance, including the Houthis, are in solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza, who are being subjected to merciless U.S.-backed Israeli aggression. The pointless regional escalation is Washington's desperate and self-destructive attempt to distract from this reality. And the pro-establishment narrative from Financial Times. Grunberg's call for de-escalation is an important, albeit misleading, step as the U.S. is merely conducting self-defense strikes against regional militant groups such as the Houthis. While the Houthis claim that their Red Sea operations are in solidarity with the people of Gaza, they are primarily aimed at boosting their dwindling popularity and consolidating their repressive rule. By this, they not only risk further escalation, but also jeopardize the Yemen peace process. Japan slips into a recession and loses its spot as the world's number three economy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, BBC News, CNN, Forbes, NHK, and the Japan Times. The Japanese economy declined in Q4 last year due to four-decade-high inflation and a weak yen, despite projections of moderate growth, pushing the country into a technical recession after economic contraction was reported in two straight quarters. According to the latest data from Japan's cabinet office, its GDP fell by 0.4% in the final three months of 2023, compared to a year earlier after shrinking by 3.3% in Q3. Although external demand helped boost exports of goods and services, it was the only category that made a positive contribution to the economy. Accounting for over half of GDP, private consumption declined by 0.2% in the fourth quarter, as households reportedly tightened discretionary spending due to rising living costs. With this preliminary nominal GDP for 2023, Japan has lost its status as the world's third largest economy by some $200 billion to Germany whose population is about two-thirds that of Japan's. This is the second time Japan has fallen in this ranking in roughly a decade and a half. Earlier, China claimed the position of the world's number two economy after the U.S. in 2010. Thanks, Melissa. Nikkei Asia brings us Narrative A. Things look bleak for the Japanese economy. While the Q4 contraction may have been due to a trend in saving money due to inflation, a third consecutive decline is likely between January and March 2024 amid falling exports. And here's Narrative B from Asia Fund Managers. There's room for optimism in Japan, as available data for the current quarter indicates a potential recovery based on exports and on private consumption, since inflation is stabilizing and wages are expected to grow. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the LDP will lose its status as largest party in the House of Representatives of Japan by March 27th, 2043. A report claims safety failures led to 344 federal inmate deaths. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, the Associated Press, and NBC. A review led by U.S. Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz of 344 inmate deaths at U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons, or BOP, facilities 
in the years 2014 to 2021, concluded safety failures were to blame for the deaths caused by suicide, homicide, accident, or unknown factors. The report, published on Thursday, identified the use of single cells, outdated security camera equipment, and a failure to stop drugs and weapons from entering the prisons among the safety factors to blame. The report cited 187 cases of death by suicide, while also pointing out systemic failures, wrong mental health assessments, single-cell living, and insufficient checks of prisoners that contributed to these preventable deaths. In the last four years of the review period, the number of deaths by suicide rose from the first four, even though the inmate population shrunk considerably between 2014 and 2021. The report follows previous Inspector General reviews of what led to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's death by suicide and the murder of convicted gangster Whitey Bulger while in prison. We'll start this round of spins with a narrative A from the Washington Post. Whether it's a high-profile prisoner like Epstein or any of the rest of the general population of its facilities, the BOP is failing prisoners with mental health issues some of which are caused by the conditions these people are forced to live in. More must be done to monitor the mental health of prisoners who should be treated with empathy and should not see their sentences come to tragic ends. And Narrative B comes from the Bureau of Prisons. The BOP is doing the best it can, and that's resulted in a lower rate of suicide in the prison system than in the U.S. population as a whole. Nonetheless, the BOP would like to see the number of suicides reduced to as close to zero as possible, and that's why it continues to offer a full range of mental health resources to its inmates and does its due diligence when it comes to monitoring the mental state of the incarcerated. And here's Narrative C from The Guardian. America's prisons are unmanageable as a whole. The BOP is short-staffed and underfunded. The mental health of inmates can hardly be the priority of authorities under such circumstances where even basic requirements may not be met adequately or regularly. With the right amount of resources, this problem could be solved. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the U.S. police-to-prison spending ratio will be 1.827 in 2030. Google joins the mission to monitor methane emissions from space. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Financial Times, Verge, Business Insider, and Bloomberg. Google on Wednesday announced a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund to process methane emissions data obtained by the MethaneSat mission. It will then map global oil and gas infrastructure to identify sources of the greenhouse gas using AI. According to the tech giant, this collaboration project aims to make information about significant methane leaks available to governments and regulators, allowing them to take action, rather than notifying companies who own the infrastructure that burns or vents methane. The satellite mission to monitor methane pollution, which allegedly accounts for nearly a third of emissions-induced global warming, is scheduled to launch in March above a SpaceX rocket after several delays due to the pandemic and supply chain crisis. MethaneSat has several other big-name supporters in addition to Google, including the New Zealand Space Agency, the Bezos Earth Fund, and the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. This comes as more than 150 countries and the world's biggest oil and gas companies signed the Global Methane Pledge last year, agreeing to drastically reduce methane emissions by 2030. 
Additionally, the U.S. and EU introduced regulations to crack down on emissions from fossil fuel infrastructure. Reportedly 80 times more powerful than CO2 at heating the planet during its first 20 years in the atmosphere, methane is the main component of fossil gas. While eliminating most of its sources of release is possible, this would increase costs in the short term and reduce output. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. For too long, international efforts have focused exclusively on cutting CO2 to tackle climate change. While doing so is indeed crucial in the long term, methane and other greenhouse gases represent a fast-moving climate threat that must be addressed now. And here lies the importance of the satellite mission to spot methane leaks around the world. Here's the establishment critical narrative from Mother Jones. Though reducing methane emissions would be a good thing, the tempting and popular narrative that this action alone is a miracle solution for buying time to address the climate crisis is nothing but a fallacy and wishful thinking. The very idea that methane is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide is flawed because there is no true equivalence between short-lived and long-lived gases. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance there will be at least 10.2 gigatons of CO2-equivalent methane emissions for the year 2050. Now, Melissa, you grew up in the 90s. This is true. You remember that trend, a very short-lived trend, where there were those T-shirts that when you heated them up, they changed color? It's a green T-shirt, and then when it gets hot, it turns red. Everyone thought it was going to be cool. And yeah. it sounds like a good idea, but then it's just armpit and underboob, just lighting up red <laughs> over and over again, and then yeah. those shirts went away. So you might think that this methane thing is a good idea, but then when there's just a cloud over your house, yeah. and we can all start to wonder what's going on there. Stop looking at my underboob. There's no good bras out there. Yep. <laughs> So, you know, you know, just I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but just, you know, unintended consequences. Our final story, scientists developed the first beef-rice hybrid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fizz, The Independent, The Telegraph, Science Alert, and Eureka Alert. Scientists at South Korea's Yonsei University say they've developed a sustainable, affordable, and protein-rich beef-rice hybrid that could cut the need for livestock farming. In their research, published on Wednesday in the journal Matter, the scientists coated the rice with fish gelatin, added cow muscle and fat stem cells to the grains, and left them in a petri dish to culture for up to 11 days. The final product reportedly had 8% more protein and 7% more fat than ordinary rice, a smaller carbon footprint than regular beef, and a low risk of causing an allergic reaction. According to scientists, because rice grains contain selenium, carbohydrates and minerals, and beef contains proteins, B vitamins, zinc, and iron, their cell-cultured rice can support a healthy lifestyle. Furthermore, the scientists claim the beef-rice hybrid consumes fewer resources and less water as well as releases a significantly smaller amount of greenhouse gas, producing less than 6.27 kilograms of carbon dioxide, compared to beef's 49.89 kilograms per 100 grams of protein. Once commercialized, the hybrid rice is expected to cost around $2.23 per kilogram, while beef is six times more expensive at $14.88. 
Thank you, Scott, for those interesting facts. We'll start this round of spins with a narrative A from Newsweek. This research deserves serious consideration as grain-based nutritious hybrid food containing beef growth from stem cells one day be a healthier and more climate-friendly alternative to conventional diets. At a significantly lower cost, cell-cultured rice could also help feed millions in countries facing challenging situations, including famines. Narrative B comes from Metro. While its cost and climate impact may look promising, it's doubtful that consumers would take to a lab-developed food as an alternative protein source to traditional animal products. Moreover, it's a challenge to provide sustainable supplies of cells that can be maintained in the lab without needing more animals. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that at least five cultivated meat products will be approved for sale in the U.S. by April 2025. I will say that the, uh, you know, the Beyond Meats, Impossible Burgers and things like mm. that, that trend has really died down. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of the people who were into it were just doing it to annoy, like, their dads. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 16th, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.